This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Duncan Trussell. Duncan is a writer, producer, and stand-up comedian. His TV credits include Mad TV, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Funny or Die Presents Drunk History. As a stand-up comedian, Duncan regularly performs at premier comedy venues around the country. He has an interest in modern Buddhism and is also a cancer survivor. Duncan Trussell is also a regular guest on Joe Rogan's podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, and he hosts his own podcast, The Duncan Trussell Family Hour, in which Duncan and a guest explore a diverse range of topics, including art, society, politics, and religion. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Duncan and I spoke about how Duncan brings mindfulness into his life and works with what Pema Chodron calls the pause. We also talked about his personal experiences, both with cancer and with debilitating depression, and how these experiences changed him. Finally, we talked about Duncan's experience of the Earth as a living being, and how he understands the quote from Alan Watts, that the apple tree produces apples and the Earth produces humans. Here's my conversation with the very open-hearted, wise and funny Duncan Trussell. Duncan, I heard about you through some friends at the Love Serve Remember Foundation who host a podcast called Mind Rolling. And Mm -hmm. my friends at the Love Serve Remember Foundation said, you got to get Duncan Trussell on your podcast, Insights at the Edge. And so here we are. You host a podcast, of course, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, and it's like podcast interbreeding is happening. Yay! Yay. Nature loves that. I know, we're creating... Well, I guess it depends. It depends. Podcast intercourse. Now, what I notice, even in starting this way, is that our conversation will be disastrous if I try to be funny. And I'd like to start by talking about that, because one of the things I've noticed is that whenever I try to be funny, it's terrible and disastrous, but yet a lot of people actually report to me that they experience me as funny, but it's only if I never try. And here you are, you're a stand-up comic, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. I think any time you try to be anything, it's disastrous. You know, it seems like it's always the pretty much, if you want to do something great, then don't try. And that actually is backed up uh, neurologically. I heard they did these, uh, so they somehow they were charting the uh, neural activity of professional basketball players versus people just learning to play. And the professional basketball players were using uh, far less of their brains than the people who were just learning to play. So that almost points to the idea of this that movement that happens when you uh, learn to do something where it goes from effort-filled to effortless. So, yeah, I, was, I say don't try to do anything. That's, that's, that's what I'm trying to do these days. I love it. Now, Duncan, I, I hear that you're very interested in Buddhism, and one might even say... And I'd be curious, would you say that you are a Buddhist? You're a practicing Buddhist? How would you describe it? You know, that's one thing I love about Buddhism is that you it seems like you don't necessarily have to claim yourself as a Buddhist because it's, I like the idea of, uh, I don't remember which essay or who said it, but it was this idea of like the difference between faith is in faith in some deity and, uh, the practice of Buddhism, and they said that the the four jewels 
the four noble truths, these must be picked up is the word that was used. Like you have to, you don't just think, oh, okay, yeah, I, that must be the truth because a lot of smart people say it is. For example, life is suffering. You, you contemplate it. And that's the practice or part of the practice is this contemplation of these ideas that are so simple. But the more you think about it, the more they start opening you up. Uh, so if that makes you a Buddhist, the contemplation of those ideas, then I would say, sure, I'm a Buddhist. But when people ask if I'm Buddhist, I usually, I don't, I don't, I don't classify myself under any religion, but I do love, I love Buddhism. My girlfriend calls herself a satanic Buddhist. Uh huh. I think it's a pretty awesome description <laughs> of something. What makes her satanic? I don't think she's satanic at all. I think she just likes the way it sounds. Right. Right. Okay. Now I'm curious, what would you say are the ideas within Buddhism that you've encountered that you really enjoy contemplating? What is it that's drawn you in? Yeah, I I, I think that. Uh, oh, that's a great question. Oh, let, me, let me just think about that. I'll, let me think about the most. Uh, Don't try. Ah. Uh, so my, I spent a, a lot of time thinking about mindfulness, which is probably what you're not supposed to do, but I do uh, really love playing around with uh, not being stuck and or not getting trapped by the hooks, which are the many, many, many thoughts that come zinging through the mind at any given moment. And so I do enjoy and I find it quite useful to see how much I can let that river of thought flow through me without reacting to it. And uh, that I have found to be incredibly useful in my life. And uh, even when you end up be reacting to whatever specific thing is popping into your head, uh you can always go back to that practice of mindfulness. That's one thing I love. The other thing I love is uh, that what Pima Chodron calls the pause, that moment before you react or before you decide to do anything, like check your email or whatever, if you just wait a few seconds and then do it, that really does throw a nice brick into the pattern of existence that you have gotten, anyone has gotten stuck in. Just doing that one little thing creates this amazing shift. You know, my friend was talking about, <clears throat> was quoting Tony Robbins, and I don't have any problem with that. And he was saying that if you take two ships moving in one direction, and one ship just gets a tiny little bit going in the other direction, the two ships will end up on other sides of the world over time. And so those little things like the pause that children talks about, if you've been always reacting to your life, you start practicing that, or mindfulness, or these subtle things in Buddhism, then it really does, over time, you find yourself in a completely different life than you might have been if you're somebody who's always reacting to uh, your thought forms or to the external universe in an instantaneous way. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the pause, because one of the things I'm curious about is the sense of timing in stand-up comedy and how potentially the practice of mindfulness meditation, learning to pause, working with space in that way, with that sense of, you know, opening up, how that might affect your timing as a performer. You know, it's with stand-up, it's the, the idea of timing and that kind of stuff is superseded by this, the imperative of being authentic. And I think that um, Buddhism meditation practice, mindfulness practice, is a great way to become more authentic. And I think that sometimes audiences can read that on a person. You know, like whenever I'm around somebody who's been practicing a bunch, and that certainly isn't me, but when I get around somebody like the time I, like whenever I've gotten to meet somebody who's, who's spent a lot of time at this practice, like Cornfield, when I got to meet Jack Cornfield or Ramdas, there's something so entrancing about them 
and they don't in everything they do. They don't really need to be talking. They just sort of just something about them is so interesting. Uh, and I think that that would serve a performer really well, a comedian or, or a spiritual teacher or anybody. So the timing issue is sort of, I, you know, I don't, the timing thing feels like more like an instinctual aspect of stand-up comedy. And I don't know how much meditation will help with timing. Uh, there is a great performer and when you talk about this, who pops into mind right away, this performer, Tignataro. Look her up. Yeah, she's great, man. And what she does is she will just completely be in the moment of whatever's happening. She doesn't really hurt. She has missed jokes, but they're the strangest jokes. But really what she's just doing is somehow just by really being connected to the now, it brings out this incredible absurdity in it. I've never seen anything like it. You should check her out. She'll okay. like, she, she reminds me of what you're saying. What's interesting to me is as you're talking about being authentic, being the number one principle, if you will, of being effective as a stand-up comic, normally a lot of times when I see comedians, I don't feel they're being authentic at all. I feel like they're giving me their shtick. Now, granted, I'm not a fan of those kinds of comedians, but it's interesting to me that you would say that that's the number one principle in your view. Of effective. For me. Yeah, for you. Yeah. For me. there And there's so many different st- styles of comedy out there from, you know, like old school Catskills, vaudeville style comedy. You can watch this. There's a whole tree of comedic styles that vary. In the same way, there's like uh, various styles of paintings from paintings of martinis diving into, or, or, or olives diving into martinis. Those those paintings that retired people buy when they're drunk at the beach to like, you know, Van Gogh. And the difference between those two is so extreme. Uh, and I think that's in, in stand-up comedy, it's the same way, but really like if you're drunk and retired and feel like buying one of the most horrifying and bland, embarrassing paintings, well, that's, I think it's that way, but they might think it's beautiful, you know, in the same way with stand-up comedy, you've got, you know, people like Louis C.K., who if you compare his style of comedy to the kind of like frenetic, um, brilliant, but uh, very improv acting style of, say, Robin Williams, you, you're looking at two completely different things, you know? So that's a, it, I think comedy is a very subjective thing. So for me, I, the only way that I feel good when I have performed is if I feel like I've really connected to the audience as I am in that moment. Well, what's really interesting to me is, I mean, I could go so far as to say that I think one of the outcomes of a deep spiritual life is the ability to be oneself, to be authentic, to not be embarrassed about who you are and how you feel in any given moment. And so that's just interesting because what it brings me to is this topic I really want to talk with you about, which is if you feel there are deep commonalities between the path of the artist for you, an artistic path, and the spiritual path, and what some of those common themes might be? Well, the I know that the more I get out of my way when it comes to stand-up comedy or podcasting or performing or creating, the better everything becomes. So the, it, it feels like the less my ego is involved in the thing and the more I become a kind of conduit so that when I'm done performing, it feels like I haven't really been on stage or there's like a, there, there, you know, the, there's the part of me that's very, caught up in the there's the ego part of me that gets really nervous before I go on stage or feels gloomy about having to go on stage sometimes or feels excited about having to go on stage and then there's the part of me that's on stage when things are going well and when things are going well that part of me that that's not me I don't know what that is but it feels like I'm not there so then when I'm off stage when I'm done performing it there's been a almost a time warp and it's very difficult to explain that feeling, but I've had that feeling when I'm writing 
And with the best podcast, suddenly two hours has passed and it feels like a second. And so I think that those are all examples of transcending the ego mechanisms, popping out of the time-space continuum for a moment and hopefully becoming some kind of transmitter of of the whole as well as you can. And I think that that is something that makes any act an, a work of art, whether it's, you know, mowing your lawn or playing the violin and a symphony. And uh, so I love that because there's no real... For some artists, I think some people like to look at things as a kind of hierarchy, you know, like people will come up to me and say, I just don't know how you could have the courage to get on stage. And I don't. I, w- I would say, well, I, I get on stage, I guess, but what? it's not me up there anyway, if things are going well, you know? And I think that I, there's something to be said for that. And I don't know if that's, I think, I don't know if that's Buddhism or what, what that is necessarily, but I love it. And it is a little scary to lose yourself in something. I think that's why a lot of people resist writing and resist art and resist doing procrastinate doing things they love is because if you're really doing something you love you vanish into you vanish for a little bit do you have vanishing techniques or ways to help yourself get out of your way are there things you do well yeah there's a lot of things you can do for that you know there's a ton of things you can do from you know lsd to jogging you know there's lots of ways to get into those moments and, and meditation, of course, mantra chanting. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of all methods that get you to that point. Um, dying. <laughs> That's a method. That would probably get you there too. But yeah, I, I, I don't have a dangerous one to practice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the kind of meditation you only do once, or I don't. I guess it depends on your religion, but yeah, yeah I, I think that there's lots of ways to do it, and I think mindfulness is a great inroad into that because it 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 kind of it, it does create the sort of an initial uh, bifurcation between the uh, self and the perceived the, the atman and the para atman, as they say, the little the little eye and the big eye, the watcher and the watch. I think Chogyam Trumpa kind of, if you read uh, Meditation and Action, he kind of starts chipping away at even that, saying that here you have duality again between these two. You know, now now you have this notion of the observer and the observed, but that creates a split universe. And he's, he's always pushing you even out of that into some other place. But as an interim sort of method for someone who is hasn't quite gotten out of the, the self. I love the mindfulness as a way to sort of pop out of the little eye into the big eye. And a few times in my life I've had it where I have experienced a kind of incredible, expansive uh, non-beingness. And, and, um, and it's the most beautiful feeling of all time. Uh, but then I'll always pop back into this meat body that I happen to be stuck in right now. Now, you mentioned something interesting to me that before you perform, sometimes you feel gloomy or terrified or something like that. And that's something that I'm familiar with in times that I've had to go on stage. Sometimes I have that experience and I've been trying to find different ways to work with it because it seems like a whole lot of suffering unnecessarily because then once I'm on stage, yeah. I relax. And so I'm, what have you discovered, Duncan? Can you help me? Yeah. Booze. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, there you could use, like, if you don't want to do that, then try, like, thinking of that great qu- verse in the Bhagavad Gita. I think it's in the second chapter. Uh, you have a right to your action. You do not have a right to the fruits of your action. And so that means, of course, that if you're really concerned, if you're nervous about getting on stage, then it means that your mind is on, it's probably focusing on the outcome uh, in, in, instead of the moment. So focusing on the outcome when you go on stage will reduce your effortless 
darkness, you know, if you're thinking about how you want, you know, like if I'm like going on, if I'm going up and I'm like, oh man, I want to kill tonight. I'm going to be so funny. It's really not good. I, it's, I'm already feeling that, that already is an indication to me that my mind is in the right place. It's kind of like the difference, but it's like surfing, it's trying, it's like surfing on waves you wish existed versus waves that actually exist. And obviously, you have to surf on the ways that actually exist if you want to get back to the shore and have a nice ride. And in that same way, when you step on stage, you're stepping into a moment in time that will never happen again and has never happened before. And if you can step on that stage with no uh, trying to shape it with some intended outcome, uh, then then you'll maybe reduce that anxiety a little bit. But a, a performer explain to me that anxiety is actually you should look at the feet that that feeling as the is your energy building up that you're about to disperse in your performance so instead of thinking that this nervousness is a unnatural response or it indicates that i haven't prepared enough or that things are going to go bad as you're being mindful and watching this you will see that really what you're watching is a kind of growing energy that's building up inside of you and that that feeling that we call nervousness may in fact just be the precursor to this discharge that's going to happen when you do whatever performance that, that you're about to do. Mm-hmm. And so that way you, you don't, you can make it, you can recognize it as an ally instead of an enemy or a harbinger of doom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful. Thank you. Sure. Now, Duncan, I'm curious about your response to this question. I had the chance to interview the musician, Katie Lang, and in that she cool. talked about her experience of meeting a teacher, Lama Gyatsu, who became her Buddhist teacher, and how the first thing he said to her was, the most important thing, Katie, is your motivation when you're mm. singing. What's your motivation? And that's my question to you. What's your motivation? For stand-up? When you're performing, Yeah. Even when you're doing your podcast and stuff, what's your motivation? Oh goodness, I, God, I would, I'm terrified of that of having a motivation for it because, you know, not to disrespect what her teacher said. No, I no, no, that's okay. Under- you, you know, yeah, yeah, that's okay. I'm, I'm asking you, so I'm just using that as a jumping off point. I bet I don't point. understand. That's yeah. a very personal relationship between the yeah. teacher and the student. Yeah. I would, I don't want to have that because I, um. I'm afraid of that. I don't want to have a reason because I think the moment you start having a, a reason, whether, you know, what in your mind will produce, I have reason, reasons all the time. Like, oh, I can't wait to talk to whoever the guest happens to be because I'm really curious about, um, you know, like, for example, I had this great uh, a guest on, uh, Jason Louvre, who is a practicing or has pra- been a practitioner of chaos magic. And so it's like, whoa, cool this is going to be awesome to talk about magic and spells. And so that'll get me excited and, and for that interview. And then it'll change for other interviews. And then I could think, okay, well, maybe what I like is the, the feeling of revelation. Maybe that's what I enjoy is those moments with a guest where they're, they give me a new outlook in the universe that I hadn't considered yet. And my universe expands. So I could say, oh, it's education or it's personal growth or it's the, recording the moments of revelation that hopefully will then transmit through the internet around the planet through to everyone who's listening and maybe make their lives a little better too. And then they'll make other people's lives better. And then I could make that bigger into thinking like, Oh, this is part of the singularity. We're all getting sucked into a technological singularity. This kind of technology is completely inaccessible to humans only like a very, very short time ago. And now we have the power to reach the entire planet. And if, it, if I can get really smart people to shoot that energy into me and into the rest of the universe through this insane technology, then I get to become part of the uh, of the world that's making the world a better, more beautiful place. But then my mind will think, you, what are you, you lofty asshole? You, who do you think you are, Gandhi? You play video games and smoke weed all the time. Shut up. And then I'll agree with that. You're like, yeah, absolutely. Because then if I start doing podcasts with the intention of helping the world, then everything will fall apart because that is so pretentious and highfalutin. So it all has to go back to that moment of like, wow, this is really fun. If I keep it there, everything's great. But the moment I apply some like, here's why I'm doing it, boy, 
boy, things will get weird. Quick. It's very interesting to me because I think I've been very motivation focused. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, wow, that's wildly different. That's even taking away that as a reference point, even the motivation to be of service or be helpful or uplift people or whatever, something like that. You're just erasing all of it. I I prefer to erase it all just, just because if I get too caught up in that stuff, then my, you know, this is the, um, Chogyam Trumpa talks about the, and I, I always wondered about this, the, when the Buddha's uh, the second temptation when Mara appears to the Buddha is Mara presents Siddhartha Gautama with his daughters. And I always wondered about that. I was always really curious to me. Like, why? what does that mean? And I always thought it meant, oh, this is like the Lord of Death is trying to like trick Buddha into being a married getting married and having kids and living that kind of life as though that were bad. And that always seemed weird to me because it's like, oh, so is Buddhism, Buddhism is not a, a monastic religion, even though it does have, have aspects of that. So what, what does that mean? And then Chogyam Trumpa says, the daughters of Mara represent the part of the mind that when you start waking up, begins to say to you, oh, look at you, you're getting enlightened. Oh, aren't you wonderful? And that's just another trap. You know, it's just another trick of the ego to get you into, like, thinking that you're, you know, that you're, it just gets you stuck a little bit more. And if, if the premise behind my, my understanding of this stuff is that get out of the way and things will get better, then, then that means that you have to even let go of the motivation for why you're doing stuff if you can. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, switching gears for a moment. One of the things I learned when I was doing a little bit of research for this conversation was that on Wikipedia, it says that you actually were diagnosed with testicular cancer and that fortunately yeah. that the cancer was successfully treated. So this was a couple of years ago. And That's I'm, right. I'm curious to know a little bit about just what that whole experience was like for you. Oh, it sucked. It's like you, you, um, you know, actually that I was, when we were talking about mindfulness, I was just at the, I have to go every, every four, six months. I can't remember. It's every certain amount of months I have to get a CAT scan. And so, um, with, with testicular cancer, it is a very treatable, it's maybe the most treatable form of cancer, curable form of cancer. 10% after you have one of your testicles snipped off by the kind doctor, there's a 10, lower than 10, but they say 10. It's more like 7% chance of it recurring. But because of that chance, every six months or so, you've got to go get a CAT scan. And um, I, have you ever gotten a CAT scan? No, I never have. So it's really intense. Um, you go in and they... Um, they inject you with this stuff called, oh God, what's it called? They inject you with this weird stuff and they make you drink this weird stuff. It's called contrast. And um, basically it allows the CAT scan to see what's going on inside your body and to see if perhaps the cancer has spread, has come back, a recurrent. And so in between getting the CAT scan there's this awful time period in between getting the CAT scan and when the doctor tells you if you're okay. And so that's where mindfulness is very useful is because you, you sit and you watch your mind just go nuts when the, you're waiting for the doctor, just go nuts. Your mind will just vomit every terrible scenario 
that it possibly can. Within a millisecond, you're planning your funeral. You're already dead. It doesn't matter that there's a 10% chance, a very small chance or an 8% chance. Your mind does not care about statistics. Your mind only uh, will go rushing in the direction of whatever emotional energy you've become the most addicted to, which in my case is apparently fear, because it'll just go rushing in these directions. And that's where mindfulness, it comes in very handy. So that's where I'm at now with it. Everything's fine. Uh, everything's fine. Results are great from the CAT scan. Found that out today. But the, um, the, in, the, in the macro getting cancer of any type, uh, and I also lost my mother to cancer, makes you an inside. You get insider info. You get a, you get a little backstage pass into the inner workings of things and you end up realizing that cancer is a teacher unlike any other teacher and it really does it have this paradoxical effect of simultaneously threatening your life while giving you life that you never had and that's a weird thing that it does but it really does do that so the uh the whole process of of going through that and of watching my mom go through it um, has really connected me to the world and made me more, I think it made me, made me alive. I don't, I don't even, I mean, I was alive before physically, but I don't think I really like appreciated life as much as I do now. So I know that's a very cliche thing. I think it's the subject of a lot of country songs and cheese ball movies, but it's true. It really does. Uh, it really is a, a strange gift. I'm going to go even more cheese ball, if that's okay. You know, because I'm being authentic, and I'm kind of a serious person, I, I mean, often, and kind of cheesy, too, warm, cheesy. Me too. But I'm, I'm wondering if your experience with cancer has opened your heart in some way, changed your level of heart-centeredness in any way. Absolutely. Yeah, it sure has. It's great. It really has. I mean, it really has. And and I can't, you know, it's so weird. Like I used to, as a comedian, you know, you go on these auditions or you'll get these possibilities of work. And some of them involve like pranking people or maybe being deceptive. And it's like, I can't even do that now. I used to be able to do that stuff. And I used to be able to, um, uh, not that I'm not mean, like I do have outbursts and can be a real dick sometimes, but it's, nothing like what I used to be like. And I think that's a combination of... I'm not sure I believe you, Duncan, that last... That's oh the, first thing you, it's the first thing you've said. That, I'm sure you have outbursts, that I believe. But the dick part, I'm not sure I believe it. <laughs> oh, you should have seen me a couple of days ago. But I, um, I, I, uh, I think that it's a combination... What happened is right after um, uh, my mom died, Raghu Marcus, who introduced us, he has this very strange ability to call me at exactly the right time. And I was in a really dark place. I was mourning and I was, uh, uh, I was, um, just, I remember just laying in bed, just not moving and just sort of just feeling completely dejected and empty. And he called and he was, and he, and it was really intense. Cause he was like, he's like, just come to the spring retreat. And I was thinking about doing it, but I was so depressed and in this like just state of like I, just being frozen that I wasn't really gonna do anything. I was just gonna lay there for a, a few weeks, probably. And he was like, "Just come, just stop, stop thinking about it. Just come, just come, come to the retreat, come to the retreat, come to the retreat." And I'm like, "All right, fine." And like in that, you know, when you're depressed and you can barely move, and it feels like your body's filled with just liquid metal. I dragged myself to my computer, got a plane ticket, went there, and then he took me to Ram Dass's house. And um, I got to be around him for a little for a little bit. And I think that the cancer and like sort of those teachings and that energy that comes from that thought song, that's what did it. It's the combo. It's interesting that you mentioned you know, not being able to 
maybe do some of the quote-unquote mean pranks that you might have done several years ago? Because that was one of my questions for you. Because as someone, I mean, as a sensitive person, I think I feel sensitive, I notice that when comedy has too much meanness in it, I actually, I feel like it's, I don't know, I'd say, okay, a simple way to put it would be it's kind of bringing me down. I feel it it shuts me down a bit. It It makes me feel bad. That's not the kind of inputs I want. Right, me either. I'm curious for you, as a performer who's maybe asked to be in all different kinds of situations, if there's some kind of debasement in it in a mean way towards others or something like that. You know, it's it's hard to embody the Buddha Dharma, if you will, enact that at the same time, I would imagine. Well, that this is the thing, though. You know, there's comedy transcends ethics. Art transcends morality. And a skillful comedian, as long as he's expressing what's truly inside of him or her, as long as that's coming out purely, I think it's everything goes. But this is uh, something that, you know, Ramdas talks about phony holy, which is like people who like to pretend that they've really like, you'll run into them every once in a while where like it just, it feels like they're judging you and you get around them. If you've been around like people like, I'm sure teachers that you've been around. Sure, sure. If you've been around any kind of teacher, you know what that feels like. Yeah. And, in Buddhism especially, you know, you read about these, uh, this is like what, uh, um, that you, re- you read about how in Buddhism there's a priority to keep truth above consistency. And that, tr- you know, this is, a, I can't remember where I read this, but something about Gandhi was doing some salt march. They, they were doing a protest march and he decided not to do it for some reason. And they're like, we told everybody that, we, sh- we were going to do this. He's like, I can't do it because it doesn't seem right anymore. And he's the one who said that. Truth is, more, truth is more important than consistency. So anyway, that's just a long rambling way of saying that methods sometimes can seem mean when they're not. You know, that, that sometimes, met- like this is a story of the, uh, a Buddhist story of the kids in the burning house. And the father is standing outside and he knows the quickest way to get them out of the house is to tell them, I've got presents for you out here. Presents, tons of presents. And the kids come running out of the house. I guess they're too ridiculously dumb to smell the smoke. They come running out of the house, and uh, they're upset because there's no presents, but they didn't burn to death. So in the moment, that, was, that methodology was, could be considered mean minus the fire. So in the same way, for a comedian or an artist or whatever, the, I think as long as you're being authentic, what if you happen to be a mean person or you're in a mean phase of your life, that's where you're at. Mm-hmm. I don't think it, it feels that great for you. It might work for the audience. It's not going to feel great for you. But in the same way, if you're an artist or a performer who's gotten caught up in being negative and dark, even though inside you just feel real like your heart is opening up and you're feeling empathy and compassion all the time, annoying, then you've got to have the courage to stick to that. Mm-hmm. And not pretend that you're mean. And so, in other words, if there's phony holy, then there's also phony unholy. Yeah. Which is people pretending to be these monsters when, in fact, they're sweet little balls of honey, just wanting love and wanting to give love. And there's a lot of them out there. Sweet little balls of honey. I like it. Yeah, I shouldn't have said balls right after we were talking about testicular cancer, but... Yeah, I was was wondering how much mileage you got out of your testes being removed. (laughs) I did it for a little bit just because I I talked about it on the podcast, and I think people... It would have seemed weird because I I went on tour fairly shortly after this is... You know, a, a few months after it had happened when I was okay again or good enough to perform again. And so I did talk about it, but I don't talk about it anymore because, uh... I just don't see the point. It doesn't feel funny enough, and I'm just not, I don't know, it's just not anywhere that I want to focus my mind when I'm on stage. Now, you mentioned this period of depression after your mom's death, and we've been working on a project here at Sounds True called Darkness Before Dawn, redefining the journey through depression, where we received a bunch of essays and also I interviewed several different spiritual teachers and writers and healers about their experiences of depression and putting it in a different framework for people, trying to understand it potentially as something that is part of 
many people's spiritual journey and depression actually as a teacher, not necessarily as this, you know, terrible thing we should just medicate ourselves out of ever feeling, not that there isn't a role for medication. But I'm curious to know in your experience as a artist and spiritual journeyer, how you would frame depression. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it is a, I think it's a natural part of the cycle of growth. I think it's just like nervousness or anything. It's it's, it's just like any other feeling or, or now I do think there's a neurological component. I've seen images of brain scans of people who have depression and for people who have overwhelming depression, I think uh, anything goes to get mm-hmm. out of that state because that's no state to be in. That's like yeah. when you see those poor mice who are stuck on the gum traps and they can't get off. It's just, forget it, man. You need help and you got to ask for help. I think that's the, with depression, you have to do the same thing that you do when you, when you have a, your car is stuck in the mud. Uh, you got to like just little, any little bit that you can do to start moving towards a place of traction, do it. Even if it just means like cleaning, cleaning, doing half the dishes one day when you haven't done it in a week, or just these tiny little movements forward can get you out of it. I think it is a like any other disastrous thing that can happen to a person. It is all part of the growing process, but it's not something that it's a dangerous thing. I think it's dangerous. I think it's dangerous, and it's one of those things where when you find yourself laying on the mattress, unable to move completely disabled, staying inside all the time, relationships floundering, all that stuff, you got to you got to fight for your life. I think it's one of those things where it's like you you have you so many other things we don't have to worry about when we get sick. You know, like thank God cuz I'm I would be I would just be dead meat if, from a cold. Our our immune system will fight the cold. It'll put on this war is always raging inside of us as our white blood cells do this beautiful battle against all the various things that infect us, you know, and we don't have to think about it. We can sit and drink beer and like smoke vape pens and watch crappy movies while our body is engaged in this intense war uh, to keep us alive. But with depression, we have to become the immune system. And, and and we have to rally the troops. And that means you got to call your friends right away and be like, hey, I can't move. I'm so depressed. Please help. You know, you have to ask people for help and then you have to help yourself by doing real basic stuff like hydrating, exercising. So, yeah, I think it's a part of the process, but it's not a place to dwell. It's not a place you want to stay at if you, if you can if you can do anything to start moving against that. You should do that, you know. It's such a terrible thing. It really is. It's just such a terrible disease. And also the other thing is if you get a disease, what's so weird is generally everyone will come and you, you announce it and everyone will just tweet, I need some soup. And probably, depending on your Twitter followers, someone will be like, I'll bring you some soup. But some for some reason tweeting, I'm so depressed. Will someone please help me? That feels so awful to a depressed person. Because you don't want to, you'll admit you have a fever, diarrhea, whatever it is. You'll admit that. That's like conversation at the at Sizzler, especially at Sizzler if you have diarrhea. But it's but depression. Ever you try? That's the first thing it does is that you try to hide it from people. And the moment you tell people I am awfully depressed then you'll get help from the universe. Sorry, I didn't mean to go all... No, that's fine. That's fine. I I want to hear what you have to say. I'm curious to know, having come through such a period in your life, do you feel that it changed you in some way? Or if you could say depression was a teacher, besides, you know, get out of the mud and ask your friends for help or ask anyone for help, really, reach out, reach out, get help. How did the experience of depression change you, if it did? Well, it, um, <laughs> well, you know, it, it may, it's something that I, I, I stay on guard now. So I, I know what I act like when I'm depressed. So that's one way it changed me, which is I'm, I'm, I try to be very clean now. Like I, I try to, uh, keep a very clean house and do my dishes and make the bed if I remember and, 
just do stuff that I know I don't do when I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. And if I start seeing these warning signs popping up and I'll try to just fix the externals. Uh, and then also it, uh, or like I'll start exercising. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't really have a very romantic answer to that outside of, I, I, I can't think of any, I've had my mom die and I've had radiation therapy and one of my balls chopped off, but man, those things are like getting a kiss on the neck by an angel compared to depression. It's so bad. I, I just, I just just try to, uh, do everything I can to keep myself out of that place. Yeah. I think your answer was quite practical and I really appreciated it. Just quite pragmatic. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious because I think Robin Williams' death affected a lot of us. It affected me really deeply. I think it affected the culture, you could say, the fabric of our world. And I'm wondering how it affected you, if it did, in what, in what way? Well, you know, again, it's like, it, it's, uh, that's, a, that's an extreme example of what, you know, what, that, what it'll do to you. So it, 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 it only... It, as someone who has been depressed, it only emphasized the importance of as much as possible doing everything in my power to um, to uh, to avoid to avoid that mind state. You know, I, the, I think the brain scans of people that you see maybe that's that comes after a series of events and decisions. That lead to that. Not to say that it's your fault if you're depressed, and I don't think it is. I don't. It's not your. Fault. I mean, that's like saying it's your fault that you're alive. Who, like, who knows why, why why it happened? But I love to believe that, and I know people who have, you know, clinical horrible bouts of depression who have who are on antidepressants and are productive and happy and have great families and have, have overcome it. Uh, and they say the same thing, which is like, you've got to be in charge of yourself. You know, you've got to like, in the same way, you got to drink enough water or you're going to be dehydrated. You've got to like, if you're angry, you got to tell people you're angry. If you're feeling any kind of anxiety or fear that's overwhelming, just ask for help. You know, so I just, it just reminded me of the importance of that. And it also made me, uh, more aware of when my friends are expressing those kinds of like jokes about being depressed and I'll be more empathetic than I have in the past to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, Duncan, I want to dig a little deeper into one part of our conversation, if that's okay. Sure. You seem game, which is you've talked a couple different ways about being authentic, not trying as a performer, being true to what's in you, and if you're true to what's in you, then it's the kind of performance you would at least like to watch, maybe, most likely. And at the same time, we talked about not, for you, linking to a definitive motivation, like you're not going to hang your hat on a particular motivation in your life. You're open. And so what that brings up for me is, is it possible that there's times when you could be being authentic, but it could actually be damaging. Like, I feel authentically like punching you. I feel authentically <laughs> like whatever. And it's yeah. like, great, I'm glad Duncan's being so authentic. But because he's not hanging his hat on any kind of motivation, he can really create damage. And well, how does he make sense of that? Yeah, right. So you, yeah, this is the, this is, there's a mystifying verse in the Bhagavad Gita, which it says, even the vilest of criminals, if their mind is absorbed in me, they will cross over the ocean of nescience as easily as someone stepping over a puddle. And that's bhakti yoga. And it's it's and this is and 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 you know the Bhagavad Gita is set on a battlefield where Arjuna is about to be compelled to be authentically his true self, which is a kshatra, a warrior who. Um, who is about to kill a bunch of people. So that's the, this is the question. This is a question that is very perplexing uh, because it, 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 it's the idea is that if we are our authentic selves and our authentic selves want to be violent, then is it okay to commit acts of violence? Um, and I don't have an answer for that. I, I don't know. I, I, per, fortunately for me, my authentic self 
seems to be more interested in taking naps than <laughs> <laughs> punching anybody. <laughs> but I, I don't, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just say I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I, I don't know that when a, for okay, a meteor slams into planet Earth. Uh, for example, the meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs. When you read in the science textbooks, you never see them say that the meteor hated dinosaurs or that yeah. that was an angry meteor. The meteor is part of nature. So nature is considered to be outside of ethics. But the moment the universe becomes a human, it becomes subject to these ideas of here's the right way to be and here's the wrong way to be. Um, and and that's a really fascinating thing. And then we're always beating ourselves up for being, you know, terrible people when we are uh, just no different from the ocean or from, from the wind or from we're just a form of energy, a kind of harmonized sequence of DNA that is producing a cellular cells and a skeleton to, to hang those cells on. And somewhere along that construction, there becomes this thing where it's like, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. Here's the way you're supposed to act. Here's the way you're not supposed to act. For example, recently there's that scandal where that football player punched his, I believe, his, his fiance in an elevator knocked her out and you could say well he's being his authentic self duncan is he is he forgiven for that is that okay for him to do that well i don't know but i will say that everyone who is ostracizing him kicking him who's like i don't know if you saw the line of people turning in his jersey and the reaction he's getting from the rest of the universe I think the rest of the universe is being its authentic self, too, and is dealing with the situation in a lot of different ways, which hopefully will teach him a grand lesson about what happens if you are, if you allow your violent impulses to subvert what I would hope are impulses that lay beneath the violence, which is love and compassion, you know? So I don't know, maybe it's a cop-out to say, human beings are a gobstopper and on the external on the outside of the gobstopper is a dark layer of anger and 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 reaction that involves unnecessary violence or aggression and then as you go deeper and deeper in you find that the authentic self no matter what way you try to cut it has at its core just a nice thick layer of love and that maybe maybe the more you work on yourself and practice and connect to Krishna or God or the universal consciousness or or the truth, and your first reaction, your first authentic reaction, is not doesn't involve punching, but involves healing or loving. Put the top out. I don't know. That's a question for the Dalai Lama. Talking about this sense of love and compassion being underneath, at the core of who we are. This brings me to the final thing I want to talk to you about, Duncan, which is I heard in the Mind Rolling podcast that we mentioned earlier, you talked about the earth being alive and your sense that there's actually a healing energy, this love, compassion, healing energy coming from the earth. So tell me more about that. I feel like the earth is alive. I, you know, if you look on YouTube, there's a great, there's the sound of the one of the energy layers around the earth it's amazing there's the earth makes a sound you can listen to it it's in the magnetosphere or something and it sounds like birds it sounds like birds or whale song it's this sad mournful beautiful chirping sound and then of course the international space station they just found plankton on it uh, on, on the international space station and they they, they theorize that the plankton got there because it rose up from the ocean, and, uh, and and that means that the Earth is this kind of maternal uh, force, is blowing life into space. Ultimate optimism, by the way, to spread life into the great gassy void uh, of the universe. But that's what she's doing, and she's singing while she's doing it. And then she's also sort of just 
giving a kind of uh, unconditional love to all the beings that are moving around her because you get to eat her. We're, it's really interesting, you know? It's, it's, so I don't know any other way. If you look at the thing from space, it looks alive. It's this big, blue, green, beautiful thing. It seems to be alive, and I'm alive, and I came out of the Earth, and I consider myself part of the Earth, so if I'm alive, then the Earth must be alive. And the sum total of all sentience and consciousness and life and all heartbeats and all cellular processes and all uh, interactions would be the personality of the Earth which seems to be right now waking up to itself in the form of the internet and all the various connected technologies that are creating kind of uh, rudimentary neurology. And I think you can read more about this if you look up the Jesuit priest, Taliard de Chardon, and his idea of the Omega Point. He predicted the internet before, I think, before there was a fa- there were fax machines. Mm-hmm. But yeah, check that stuff out. I do think the Earth is alive, and I think that the Earth, like any other creature, is evolving and is gaining its own consciousness. Now, you said, I came out of the Earth. I think most people think they came out of their parents and that the human species didn't, you know, did that come out of the Earth, humans? Sure. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's because whatever I'm made of, or well, now it's different, but when you're a baby, when the baby, when you're, the baby is in, is developing, when the fetus is developing, well, what is that? What is, what's fueling the development? You know, it's whatever your mom's eating and drinking. It, that, that the, your mother's body is transforming that and the, the you know, and fundamental units of energy that are being used to uh, allow the genetic code in the, in the DNA of the fetus to, uh, print out a baby and all the things that your mother ate came from the earth. So you're made of the earth. And I mean, I don't know. I love the idea that some, some freaks have that we are actually interstellar, that DNA is some kind of interstellar thing that came in on a comet or something. But I don't know about any of that, but I would say that in the same way, I would say that if I have a, uh, cheese that came from a block of cheese that has been shaped in some different thing, I would still say that cheese came from the block of cheese. And the block of cheese I came out of is a planet. This is Alan Watts' idea where he says an apple tree, an apple, in the same way an apple tree makes apples, the, the an apple tree apples the earth peoples. It makes people. That's what it does. It's not about people. Okay, Duncan, I got one final question for you. This program's called Insights at the Edge. And I'm always curious to know what someone's edge is in their life. And what I mean by that is, what's the thing inside of you that you're growing into, working with, grappling with, wrestling with? What's your sort of growth edge, if you will? I'm afraid to die. And I just... um... You know, it's so. I'm glad you asked me that because I just got. You know, I, like I mentioned, I, I got this CAT scan results today, which are fine. But I had been putting that off for months, and I was not supposed to do that. And I was doing that out of fear because I was afraid. I was afraid. That's all. I was afraid of the outcome because I'm afraid to die. And my my brain had made managed to make fool me into thinking that the CAT scan was the thing that was going to give me the cancer is ridiculous. Uh, but I was, I was feeding into that and I allowed the fear to conquer me. And then what ended up happening was for a few months, I got to live in a kind of secret state of terrible anxiety because I didn't want to tell anybody I was putting this off. Because anyone who loved me in their right mind would say, what are you doing? Go get that done. You're being ridiculous, which is exactly what my brother said when I finally confessed to him what I was doing. And, and now I have this incredible burden lifted off of me and I feel so good, so good, and I and so relieved, you know. So yeah, that's my edge. I've got to be less of a. Um, well, I guess you can't say that word on the show, but I've you got can to, say uh, whatever. You can say whatever. I got to be less of a pussy, uh, and 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 those and that and but you know again like all those things that we're most afraid of, that's the teacher, and that's a very funny thing when you're someone who likes to think they're on a spiritual path is that actually 
if you're putting off things you're afraid of, you're running in the opposite direction of the arms of your um, of your of your teacher. Which, if if you don't have a guru, which I don't have, and necessarily or a living one anyway, then you um, uh, that's what you get in this incarnation. Cat scans, guru cat scan. What a sweetie. I've been speaking with Duncan Trussell. He's the host of the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. And you can find out more about his work at duncantrussell.com. Duncan, thank you so much. Thanks for being so freaking real. Oh, thank you. What a great interview. That was a hoot. You are not a pussy, just for the record. No way. (laughs) No way. You're very bold, very courageous, and you say it the way you feel it. You really report truthfully on your experience. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's really been wonderful chatting with you. Let me know when it goes up and I'll tweet it and everything. Cool. Soundstreet.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Hare Krishna.